Good evening, everyone. Welcome to um, tonight's event hosted by uh, British Government at LSE. Um, we have a lecture from um, Robin Harris, Conservative Leadership, What Works and What Doesn't. Let me just say a little bit about um, uh, British Government at LSE. It's hosted in the Government Department, um, and I'm the Chair of the Government Department, Paul Kelly. Um, but it's an initiative to bring together um, research, public engagement, and other activities in the school relating to British government, the study of British government and engagement with British government. We host public lectures, like tonight. We host seminars and other events. We've recently had um, a lecture by Bill Bratton on uh, um, lessons for policing. We've had a seminar by um, Keith Vaz, the chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, talking about um, issues to do with uh, his brief on the Home Affairs Select Committee. And we have coming up on the 24th of November, John Whittingdale coming to speak to us about the, uh, the uh, um, Culture, Media and Sport um, Select Committee, which is, as you all know, currently dealing with the, um, the Murdoch and News International issues. It's a great pleasure for us to introduce tonight's speaker. Robin is going to present a paper based on um, his book, which is um, available for uh, purchase and signing at the end of this, this session. A large book, you can see it on the table there, um, exploring in great historical detail um, conservative leadership and from this he's going to draw out some um, conclusions about what works and what doesn't. So let me turn to introduce our speaker. Robin Harris, the author of Conservatives of History, read history at Exeter, Col Exeter College Oxford and did his doctoral thesis on French medieval history which obviously qualifies him for working on the history of the Conservative Party. He began to work for the Conservative Party in 1978, later becoming the director of the Conservative Research Department and between 1985 and, uh, between 1985 and 1989. In the interim, and perhaps more interesting for us given the, the, the topic of this talk, he was a political advisor first at the Treasury and then at the Home Office. He finished up as a member of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's policy unit and as one of her closest aides. When Mrs. Thatcher left Downing Street, so did he, going on to assist her with her books and speeches. In recent years, he's written an authoritative history of the city-state of Dubrovnik and an acclaimed biography of the French statesman Talleyrand. He's also completed a biography of Margaret Thatcher to appear after her death. He writes and comments frequently on politics in the British and American media. In his book, Conservatives, The Conservatives of History, is published by Bantam Press. Ladies and gentlemen, um, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Robin Harris. Thank you, Professor Kelly. Ladies and gentlemen, my voice is a bit ropey but um, the grey cells are still working, so we should be able to proceed perfectly well. Well, um, the title of this uh, 
talk, as Professor Kelly said, is conservative leadership, what works and what doesn't. But I want, first of all, to put you out of your misery because I don't have a definitive answer to this question that I have posed. But then, of course, nothing in politics works in all circumstances all of the time. Stupid thing here, let's move that. Nothing works in all circumstances all the time. But of course, the topic is relevant because the Conservatives are back in power. And sometimes, you know, it really is odd. The Conservatives always seem to be coming back. Um, and that isn't what people expect. It isn't what people have expected in the past, but it just keeps on happening. Now, the Conservative Party's traits are by no means all of them lovable. But I think it must be acknowledged that the party is, quite simply, the most successful political party in the world. Uh, perhaps the only other contestant would be the Communist Party. But the Communist Party isn't a real party at all because it doesn't accept plural politics. But bar the Communist Party, I can't think of any party which has held such a tight and extended grip on power for so long as the Conservative Party. In fact, the Conservatives, with occasional variations in name, have, in the course of almost two centuries, seen off successive enemies who really ought to have seen them off. Starting as uh, an aristocratic landed faction at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th centuries, the Tories, as we must then call them, saw off the Whigs, that is the early Liberals, in the important race to secure urban middle class support. And the party then rose to what seemed at the time the impossible challenge of mass democracy, secured by ever greater widening of the franchise, to dispute with the Liberals, whom it smashed and divided, and then to dispute with the Labour Party. And sometimes the Conservatives smashed Labour, sometimes Labour smashed the Conservatives. But in general, if we look back, we can say that the Conservatives first blunted socialism and then in the 1980s overturned and reversed it. And that's quite a record. Now you may say that this success itself reflects the nature of our own distinctively British polarised political debate. And that is true. And you can also say that it reflects the first-past-the-post electoral system, distinctively British too, or at least Anglo-Saxon. And that's true. But I would qualify that by saying, first of all, that if the Conservative Party had ever been stupid enough to lose the support of its grassroots and its basic, uh, basic interests which underpinned it, on the one hand, or if it had failed to reach out to what we sometimes rather misleadingly call floating voters, uh, on the other hand, if it had failed consistently to do that, first of all, it wouldn't have been in a position to take advantage of this polarised system, and secondly, in all probability, the first-past-the-post system itself would have been changed. But we all know that that didn't happen, and I can say that it is extremely unlikely to happen. Well, I felt reasonably well qualified to write this book, partly because, as Professor Kelly said, 
<coughs> I'm used to writing history. But more importantly, because I was part and parcel of the Conservative Party as an insider, a functionary, an advisor. Uh, and then in 1990, something happened. And this something was that uh, I became political dead meat. And that, I think, gave me the second uh, qualification to write this book, because it's quite impossible. It's good to know about a subject, but you mustn't be dependent for your income or your prospects on the institution that you're writing about. And I can fairly say that I am certainly not dependent on the Conservative Party. I am a member, as it were, of the Conservative tribe, but I live in a separate, indeed distant, wigwam. Well, there are several approaches that could have been taken as regards this book, all of which would have been legitimate. I could have primarily concentrated on party organisation, and I do address this, of course. I could have concentrated on Conservative Party policies. Obviously, they come into the, into the story, but again, I don't think that they're really central, because most of the time, Mrs. Thatcher's the exception, most of the time the Conservative Party doesn't claim to rule because it has the best policies, but often because it is actually uh, the answer to other people's bad policies. I could have concentrated on ideas, uh, and there is such a thing as conservatism, but the ideas in general for the Conservative Party have been instrumental. They have been used by the Conservative Party uh, rather than actually generating conservative policy. Conservative Party does have a distinct identity, and at times it does indeed pursue policies which have, which have a strong ideological flavour. But basically, these things should be understood in the context of events. And events is the other aspect, which of course have to come into this, because uh, the Conservative Party is constantly, as other parties are, reacting to changes around it. But I chose centrally to concentrate on the Conservative Party leadership, as Professor Kelly said. Um, well, biography is actually more fun, but that isn't the only or principal rationale. The Conservative Party leadership is uniquely important in understanding the party itself. The party has always been a kind of elective dictatorship, that is, since the elections appeared in the 1960s. And this is really a matter of mentality and habit and tradition and not some constitutional quirk which is likely to be changed from one year to the next. And what it means is that the leader can do more or less what he or she wants to do as long as he or she is deemed successful. The Conservative Party begins as the residue of the first of a number of electoral smash-ups. This first smash-up was the smash-up of 1832, which occurred over the Great Reform Bill. Well, faced with mass demands for a widening of the franchise and a removal of abuses, uh, the Tories could have conceded something. Uh, and perhaps something, if they had been intelligent enough, uh, would have been enough. But the Duke of Wellington and Robert Peel, the party's leaders of the day, in fact, just tried to defend the indefensible. Now, neither of these men was stupid. It's very important to remember this. Um, but their reasoning 
and particularly Peel's reasoning, does have a contemporary feel to it which we should appreciate. It was based on the fear of making one too many U-turns. Both of these men, but particularly Peel, who glorified in his nickname of Orange Peel, bestowed on him unlovingly by the uh, Irish nationalist leader O'Connell, particularly Peel, had uh, staked their integrity on resisting what is called Catholic emancipation, that is the widening of political and civil rights to include Catholics. A dreadful idea, really. I'm a Catholic, so probably I wouldn't be here if this had not happened. But anyway, but anyway the um, Peel, above all, reneged on this. He was so shaken by the contempt with which he was treated by his hardliners that he decided that he would never do another U-turn. And that is essentially why Peel and Wellington refused to compromise faced with demands for the widening of the franchise. And this intransigence led directly to this enormous electoral smash. And the Conservatives, as a result of the 1832 election on the new wider franchise, were reduced to 150 out of 658 seats. But within a decade, in fact in 1841, they were back again and Peel was Prime Minister. Well, Peel. Robert Peel was a great administrator, a great statesman, and in most respects a great man. On his death in 1850, there was a spontaneous national mourning which extended through every class and every region of uh, England. Prig, utterly self-regarding, with a deep-seated and ill-concealed contempt for his own party, these are the weaknesses which let Peel down, and they went along with his enormous strengths. So to Peel must go the credit of getting the Conservatives back in 1841, but to him principally must go the discredit for the political catastrophe in 1846 over the repeal of the Corn Laws, which split his party and kept them out of power for several decades. The Corn Laws, we may recall, were intended to control and to tax the import of grain, foreign grain, and as such were regarded by the agricultural interests, that is the landed aristocracy and gentry particularly, as being absolutely crucial to their interests. Now Peel was right about this policy because trade protection makes no sense and free trade always does. And that is particularly so for an industrial nation as Britain was becoming in the 1840s whose workforce relies on cheap food to keep down costs. But, and it's a very big but, Peel knew that the majority of his party represented these very agricultural interests. That these interests were deeply attached to the Corn Laws, which they and he, until recently, had been public publicly defending as necessary. Now, Peel could have resigned. He could have let the Whig opposition repeal the Corn Laws, but he wanted to do it himself. <coughs> He wanted to do it because he wanted to show his party who was master, who was master. And he wanted to, to put it crudely, rub their noses in it. Two thirds of his MPs rebelled, and that was the end of Peel. Now those who blamed Israeli, Bentink, Darby and co for stirring up these boneheaded protectionists really get it wrong because 
they don't understand the requirements of politics and they don't require they don't understand the requirements of political leadership uh, I'm going to quote Peel after he left power because I think that it's quite an interesting revelation not just so much of of his mentality, but of this general mentality, the mentality of leaders who think they know best, who often do know best, but look down on their own supporters. This is Peel in, um, well, about 1847, I think. He writes, so far from regretting the expulsion from office, I rejoice in it as the greatest relief from an intolerable burden. To have to incur the deepest responsibility, to bear the heaviest toil, to reconcile colleagues with conflicting opinions to a common course of action, to keep together in harmony with the sovereign, the lords and the commons, to have to do these things and to be at the same time the tool of a party, that is to say, to adopt the opinions of men who have not access to your knowledge and could not profit from it if they had, who spend their time in eating and drinking and hunting, shooting, gambling, horse racing and so forth, would be odious servitude to which I never will submit. I intend to keep aloof from party combinations. Well, I can tell you that is not political leadership. Well, let's turn to Peel's persecutor Disraeli. Disraeli is a great man, but his greatness is widely misunderstood. He is frequently credited, not least by the Conservative Party, with being a committed advocate of social reform, sometimes called One Nation Toryism. And there is a, a stream during his career of, of this, more rhetorical than anything else, but it is there. And his social reforming measures on health, trade unions, the environment, and so on, uh, under his <coughs> government of 1874 to 1880, are adduced as evidence of this. But the point is that these measures, Disraeli's measures, were largely measures of consolidation, ones that any party in power would have introduced. And Disraeli himself once said that most new government bills are found in the pigeonholes of their predecessors, and so were these. In fact, concentration on this one-nation theme has obscured two important facts about Disraeli, which again are important about the Conservative Party in general. First, Disraeli's supreme achievement was out of government. During those decades in the wilderness, he had the brilliance and the guts to keep the party going, to keep it alive when it could have died of boredom and despair. He was, in fact, the greatest leader of the opposition that this country's ever had. And the second point is, which people are inclined to forget, what really mattered to him, this outsider, this this Jew who spent his time defending the Anglican church, this um, man of not particularly humble but fairly humble origins who was completely obsessed with the aristocracy, who insisted, for example, that half the members of his cabinet must be in the House of Lords and who loved to promote the most incompetent duke that he could possibly find to his cabinet. This man was a romantic patriot, Salisbury, the next Tory Prime Minister after Disraeli, said of Disraeli, his old boss, a man whom he didn't like much, but in the end came grudgingly to respect, that zeal for the greatness of England was the passion of his life. And that is true. That is true of Disraeli. You'll find in this book that I rate the third Marquess of Salisbury 
alongside Margaret Thatcher as the Conservative Party's greatest leader. Salisbury was leader of the party for 18 years and for 14 of those he was Prime Minister. While Mrs Thatcher was leader for 15 years and for 11 and a half of those she was Prime Minister. She beats Salisbury for continuous occupation of number 10 but he beats her on the number of years. Well, Salisbury fascinates me and I hope should fascinate you because he was such a, a mine of contradictions. I don't know where that came from. I don't think it came from me. He wasn't a natural party manager because he had a distaste for bribing and flattering people, which is what party management is largely about. But in fact, he turned out to be remarkably good at it. Salisbury thought, and he said, that he was temperamentally quite unsuited to leading a coalition because he didn't naturally compromise over anybody or with anything. But in fact, he turned out to be the most successful head of a coalition government that Britain's ever had. And finally, Salisbury, this fastidious aristocrat, cannot be said and would not have claimed to have had any feeling for or insight into the deepest insights of the middle class. Yet it was precisely under Salisbury in the last decades of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that the Conservatives, or better the Unionists as we should probably call them, can be seen as overwhelmingly the safe option for Middle England and as becoming the natural party of government. Now there's no single explanation of why this happened. I think that it's satisfactory. The Conservative Party had brilliant leaders. It was quite well organised. It had lots and lots of money to campaign with, which is always useful. But partly, I think, it was the result of the follies of uh, the Conservatives' opponents, particularly Gladstone's clumsy and sudden embrace of Home Rule for Ireland, which split his supporters, part of whom the Liberal Unionists joined Salisbury first in supporting his government and then actually in, as a, the great Unionist coalition. Um, it was partly, though I think, a wider change in voting patterns, which seems to be true everywhere, that as people aspire to move up the social hierarchy, uh, they want more security, uh, and they are more interested in property, savings, uh, and this is the sort of thing that people expect from a conservative-minded party. And so they are inclined simply to move to the right for social and economic reasons. And also that reminds us that politicians don't really control politics. Uh, they have to be opportunistic to some extent. Uh, they certainly cannot reshape the world in which they live. But the other thing about Salisbury, why he fascinates me and I think is an important, uh, an important model, is that while he was managing this coalition and doing so with great tact and charm, he never forgot his own supporters. He never forgot how much he relied upon them rejecting some intelligent wheeze which had actually been put forward by one of his um, bright colleagues, rejecting this, he made the following remark. He said, you may say that they, that is his supporters, you may say that they can't vote against you, but they won't trouble to vote for you, and they won't work for you, and you'll find it out at the polls. Well, David Cameron perhaps should remember that as well. Well, under Salisbury's 
successor and nephew, Arthur Balfour, in 1906, the Conservatives endured yet another huge electoral smash-up. The Unionists lost 245 seats. Only 157 of them were returned to a House of Commons of 670. Only three ex-Cabinet ministers were returned. And there was a huge increase in the Liberal vote. Now, some of the problems which lay behind this smash-up were not Balfour's fault, but some of them were his fault. Balfour, though no fool, was silly. He was unconvincing, and above all, he mishandled the issue of tariff reform, and I want to dwell on that a little. Because from now on, in other words, from the turn of the century, until at least the late 1920s, the Conservative Party became fixated with the erection of a system of tariffs which would provide a kind of protected zone for British industry and in exchange ensure markets for agricultural produce to come to this country from the colonies. Now this was an economic program. It was a social program because it was intended to uh, keep higher employment and indeed to pay for benefits for those who were not employed. And it was an imperial program, so therefore it was coherent. But it was also profoundly misguided. First of all, it led to Conservative Party splits. The initial splits were, of course, with the free traders, like Winston Churchill. But these were quite a small minority. They were quickly outgunned, and they left this uh, the conservative ranks and either dropped out of politics or, as in Churchill's cases, joined the liberals. But then, more damagingly, really, were the splits within the protectionist ranks between the so-called whole hoggers, who wanted to go all the way quickly with a tariff wall, uh, and uh, the others who were committed to protection, uh, but slowly, moderately, uh, and particularly pressing this line were the party managers because they understood that there was a lot of feeling in the country against it. Now, the splits over protection, over tariff reform, have often been compared to the splits in the 1990s, which you may have noticed continue today in various forms, in the Conservative Party over Europe. Now, I think the comparison is fair in one respect. And that's to say that the leadership, the party leadership, behaved stupidly over protection and it's consistently behaved stupidly over Europe. Balfour, like John Major in the 1990s, tried to split the difference. And when you split the difference, you often just produce splits. And certainly you're left looking weak, as both Balfour was and Major was. And the reaction to um, Balfour's attempts to do this uh, are contained in uh, a rather nice little verse. This was written by Sir Wilfrid Lawson, uh, the uh, radical liberal MP, and Balfour had in fact stated in the House of Commons uh, that he had no settled convictions on the issue of the tariff. Well, Lawson wrote as follows, <clears throat> I'm not for free trade and I'm not for protection. I approve of them both, and to both have objection. In going through life, I continually find it's a terrible business to make up one's mind. 
and it's always the best in political fray to take up the line of the Vicar of Bray. So in spite of all comments, reproach and predictions, I firmly adhere to unsettled convictions. Well, that isn't leadership either. But having said that, I think the wider comparison with Europe is misguided. Obviously, there's no opinion research which tells us this firmly from the 1920s because scientific opinion research wasn't done. So one can't actually measure this point. But it's pretty clear that tariff reform, the imposition of tariffs, was unpopular. Um, the Conservatives were accused by their opponents of wanting what were called food taxes and of wanting what was called the dear loaf. And whenever, as notably in 1924 and 1929, the Tories went hard at an election on the basis of the tariff, they lost badly. By contrast, Euroscepticism, uh, whether you take the milder variety which wants a fundamental renegotiation of Britain's <coughs> relationship with the European Union, or whether you take the stronger variety which wants Britain to get out altogether, uh, is quite different because this is a popular issue. Now, it may not be uh, the issue which at any particular time has the highest profile, but clearly of itself, as the opinion polls continue to show, and show particularly at the moment, it's certainly not a political incubus. Well, Balfour was succeeded in 1911 by Bonalore. Bonalore was maliciously christened by Asquith, after his death, as the forgotten Prime Minister, but he certainly doesn't deserve to be forgotten at all. The interest to us of Bonalore <clears throat> is that he was one of the very few Conservative leaders who deliberately led the party from the right. Now, one, and possibly two other leaders have done this. One, this is the possible, Salisbury, certainly he was a right-wing Tory, but he did it fairly carefully and had to do so because of the nature of the coalition. The other, of course, is Mrs. Thatcher. Bonalore and Margaret Thatcher now, didn't necessarily do everything that their hardliners wanted them to do, but they were trusted by them because their hearts were thought to be in the right place in both senses of right. Now, no model of conservative leadership, of course, is perfect in all circumstances, as I began to say, but this one seems to me to have a lot more going for it than is generally thought. <clears throat> well, this brings us to 1922. 1922. That year is certainly etched, even now, into Tory consciousness. Most people seem to think that the famous party rebellion at the Carlton Club of that year is, in fact, commemorated in the name of the 1922 committee, that is, the committee which composes the backbench parliamentarians of the party. In fact, that isn't so. But the folklore is right in recalling that 1922 is the only time that the party has confronted and forced out its leader, the honourable but inadequate Austin Chamberlain, of whom F.E. Smith, who was neither honourable nor inadequate, said that Austin always played the game and always lost it. Well, this question was whether the Conservatives were prepared to remain in coalition, in this case with the coalition led by Lord George's Prime Minister, 
and to go into the next election, which was imminent, on a common slate with Lloyd George and his supporters, with the implication that Lloyd George would again become Prime Minister. Now, this is very odd because Austin Chamberlain, if Austin Chamberlain had said to his supporters, well, I want to become Prime Minister, the party would have, would have, would have worn it. But he didn't. He said, no, no, we must follow Lloyd George. But there was a strange contradiction in his nature, really, because on the one hand, he didn't have the self-confidence to think that he should be Prime Minister. On the other hand, he had the most enormous self-confidence at the expense of his own supporters, the backbenchers. He was absolutely convinced, egged on by F.E. Smith and Winston Churchill, that he was indispensable. He thought that he could intimidate the backbenchers to renew their alliance with a view to this imminent election. Well, at the Carlton Club meeting, he refused to compromise. He was deserted even by his chief whip, who spoke against him. He lost the vote. He was proved wrong. He was proved eminently dispensable. He resigned. Lloyd George resigned. The Conservatives, with Bonner Law back as leader, went into the next election and won on their own. Well, there are echoes, perhaps, of some of this today. There certainly is discontent in the Conservative Party, which is again in coalition, though, of course, with a Conservative Prime Minister, uh, not a Liberal one. Another difference is that Nick Clegg is certainly not as obnoxious as Lloyd George and not half as effective either. David Cameron is certainly cleverer than Austin Chamberlain, but perhaps he has a little Chamberlainite arrogance that he would be wise to curb before it gets him into trouble. We now come to Stanley Baldwin. Baldwin was a shrewd and successful Tory politician with a reassuring way that made him very popular in the country. He was a temperamental and natural reconciler, though he couldn't, afford, he couldn't avoid the 1926 general strike, the only one the country's had. Baldwin is nowadays venerated by people on both wings, actually, of the Conservative Party. The right like his tone, they like his Christianity, they like his affection for the countryside. Um, they like a certain element, I think, of mysticism, which, uh, which he liked to cultivate. And the left of the party like his social inclusiveness and his willingness to compromise, and so on. Personally, I'm not at all persuaded of Baldwin's merits. Um, I won't go into all of the reason why. Instead, I'll just quote Winston Churchill on him. And Winston Churchill here is comparing Baldwin with Neville Chamberlain, his successor. Churchill writes, Stanley Baldwin was the wiser, more comprehending personality, that is wiser than Neville Chamberlain, was the wiser, more comprehending personality, but without executive capacity. He had a deep knowledge of British party politics and represented in a broad way some of the strengths and many of the infirmities of our island race. He had a genius for waiting upon events. The trouble is, of course, that waiting on events isn't always enough. Well, Churchill. I don't want to say much about Churchill because there's actually too much to say. Churchill's career, to me, shows two things. First of all, his career shows that it's quite possible to be a really bad politician in both parties, as Churchill was, and be a really very great man. 
And secondly, it shows also that what's good for the Conservative Party, and let's remember that appeasement was very good politically for the Conservative Party, right down to the end of 1938, after Munich, right till the turn of the year, it was politically a real winner for the Conservative Party, that what's good for the Conservative Party isn't always good for the country. I move on a bit. 1945, the election defeat and its consequences. This was another of the really big smash-ups, and the worst since 1906. The Conservatives and their allies won just 213 seats. They still got 40% of the vote, but Labour swept ahead on an enormously high turnout. Now, essentially, the Conservatives had three choices at this point. They could either accept the advance of collectivism. Collectivism in the sense of planning, economic planning and social planning, which had made enormous advances during the war. And they could accept the creation of a welfare state uh, put forward by Beveridge, uh, a welfare state which would guarantee in some sense provision for everybody from the cradle to the grave. They could indeed, I suppose, in theory, have tried to outbid labor on this matter. I don't think that was feasible. But anyway, that was one possibility. The second, the second possibility was that they could have rejected the whole of this new direction and argued from first principles against state power, against state monopoly, and so on. And this option was around. It was contained in Hayek's famous book, published in 1944, The Road to Serfdom, which Churchill, in fact, bowdlerized and distorted in his notorious Red Gestapo election broadcast that had got him into so much trouble. But this option would have required more intellectual effort than the Conservative Party could muster at that time. Or it could, of course, have gone for some kind of middle way. And this is what he did try to do in a very low-key manner. And it's what Rab Butler, who was in charge of post-war policy thinking, uh, did later in the late 40s and 50s. But in the event, the Conservatives just hoped that Churchill would deliver victory, and he couldn't and didn't. The Conservatives, they were back in 1951. Well, the period of 1951 to 1979, I think, can be characterized by the party coming to terms with two great questions, or perhaps failing to come to terms with the two great questions. First of all, how is it going to resist socialism at home? And how was it going to cope with the loss of great power status for Britain abroad? Well, Churchill didn't sort this out. Eden couldn't sort it out. He was gone in 1956 over Suez. Macmillan tried, and Macmillan is interesting because, of course, he is David Cameron's only conservative pinup. The other pinup, of course, being Tony Blair. But Macmillan was certainly cleverer than Eden. He adroitly ensured that the economic and political cycles went in tandem. And as a result, this allowed the Conservatives to win triumphantly again in 1959 with a 100-seat majority. The trouble was that economically the wheels were coming off this wagon and they would never really get back on again. Macmillan's combination of stoking demand but applying controls at home and looking to the European 
common market as it was then, European Union as it is now, to offer some kind of new hope, vision, alternative framework abroad. This combination did not work. Of course, it didn't work immediately when de Gaulle um, vetoed our attempted membership in 1963, but it didn't work either, of course, under Heath. Um, I could say more about Macmillan, but I just want to say one thing. If I was to put my finger on why I distrust Macmillan as a model of leader, I would point to a note that Macmillan wrote to Michael Fraser, who was director of the Conservative Research Department, an organization I know well. This note was written in February 1957, and Macmillan wrote, I am always hearing about the middle classes. What is it they really want? Can you put it down on a sheet of notepaper and I will see whether we can give it to them? <laughs> you see, that shows a complete misunderstanding of what it is to be middle class because the middle classes don't want anything from government. They want to keep what they have and what they earn. And this fundamental misunderstanding, this cynical paternalism, is what Macmillan seems to me to represent. Well, it won't surprise you that I consider Margaret Thatcher to be the most successful Conservative Prime Minister in the modern age. Three successive big election wins, Britain's unique and very significant role as the United States' chief ally in winning the Cold War, and the success of her economic policy. Now, on the third, I just make two points. The Conservative Party hasn't usually been very good on economics. The only reason why we're inclined to think so is the Labour Party has been even worse. But in this matter, the mature verdict of even unsympathetic commentators, particularly expert commentators, is that whatever the social disruptions, which is another question, Mrs. Thatcher got the economics largely right. And unless you do that, you don't, from the Conservative position, you don't win elections. So, what does work for a Conservative leader? Well, as I've said, different things at different times, but I'm just going to end on these thoughts. One, keep your core support reasonably happy and don't ignore, snub, or threaten the bulk of your backbenchers. That's the first. Secondly, win over the floating voters. Now, these people may not actually be floating at all. They're probably very closely attached to particular interests or particular views, but they don't necessarily have that attachment within a party, and they certainly don't necessarily represent what you could call the middle. But anyway, you have to win them over. Thirdly, if you can, split your political opponents, as Salisbury did. And if you can actually win some over, fine. But if you simply cause them to lose heart and drop out altogether, that's fine too. The Conservative Party historically thrives on low turnouts. Uh, it is nonsense to believe that you have to convince everybody in a democracy in order to win power. Fourth, if you enter a coalition, you must control it, or it will control you, and you will regret it. Fifth, if you enter a war, win it. And finally, never, ever believe that you, as Conservative Party leader, 
are indispensable. The Conservative Party is by instinct passive. It obeys, if sullenly. But it is also hungry for success. And if too long deprived of that, the party's next meal will be you. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to invite questions from the floor. If you could indicate by raising your hand, and we'll pass a microphone to you, and please don't ask your question until the microphone arrives. So who'd like to start off with a question? Or are you all so persuaded that the debate is open? The frontier, Alex. Hi. Um, David Cameron repeatedly describes himself as a liberal conservative. Um, just want to know what your thoughts on that are, or whether maybe he's a conservative liberal, or whether these terms mean anything these days. Should we take a couple more questions? Are there any more? There's one of the towards the back there. Uh, John Strafford. Um, in your opening remarks, you said that the Conservative Party kept in contact with its grassroots. Um, it had 3.1 million members in 1951. It's down to 160,000 today. It's lost 100,000 members since Cameron became leader. At that rate of attrition, by the time we get to the next election, it will hardly have any members at all. Is it still possible to win an election when it's lost all its grassroots? Thank you. And one further question, we'll just take those two. Yes, one here, and then we'll, we'll let Robin answer. Yeah, hi. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, so David Cameron, he won a war. Um, he didn't really keep his backbenchers happy on Europe, so what's your, your take on that? What's, what's the right strategy for him on Europe? Okay. Three very different questions. Ah. To take those in your own well, order. <coughs> what David Cameron means when he says he's a liberal conservative? Well, if I was to be unpleasant, I would just say, search me. But um, I think one can... I think one wants to... Probably what he doesn't mean, he means that he's not um, a right-wing conservative. Um, I think he means that he's socially liberal, probably. Um, and I think also that in saying that, he's trying to suggest, and probably rightly suggesting, that he feels more in common with the Liberal Democrats than he does with many on his own back benches. On his own back benches. Um, but, of course, you rightly say, I mean, what does a liberal conservative mean? I mean, if, of course, one meant a classical liberal conservative, well, I'm a classical liberal conservative. I want a small state, um, maximum uh, power to individuals, minimum power to government, and so on. I want a, uh, an enterprising free economy. Somehow I don't think that's what he meant. Um, I think that David Cameron uses these phrases, I mean, his background is in marketing, as a marketing technique rather than a philosophical self-description. And I think it's probably, as I say, intended to show that he has a lot in common with the liberals and not too much in common with his own right-wing backbenchers. As for the grassroots, yeah, well, uh, you can't win elections, if, um, as Salisbury said, because people won't turn out. Um, they won't support you. Uh, and um, I think it is worrying that the Conservative membership has declined as sharply as it has. Um, it is probably true that um, 
people are less inclined to join political parties anyway than they were, say, 25 years ago. Or indeed, 50 years ago. I think that there was much more joining of things and indeed much more, for example, participation of public meetings. Um, but I think that, that I mean, you're completely right. Uh, if the party is hollowed out, it cannot win an election. This is, in fact, what happened. Um, I didn't actually talk about the major fiasco, but I will now because it is relevant to this. Um, the Conservatives were doing quite well until Black Wednesday, when the exchange rate mechanism came back to um, grab us, and when indeed Sterling had to drop out of the exchange rate mechanism. And from that point on, the Conservatives were well behind Labour uh, on the big question as to which party was better able to manage the economy. And that was the key reason why Conservative support overall fell so dramatically. Um, the 1997 election was a disaster. 31% uh, Conservatives got, which was a smaller proportion of the vote than at any time since the beginning of mass democracy. And one of the and the point I'm making here is that well before 1997, the Conservatives had lost so many of their local government seats that in fact the local parties were in a state of uh, great weakness. And there were really, really very few people who were able to campaign on the ground in 1997. So I think that is a, I mean, I agree with your thought. Um, David Cameron did win a war. Well, I, I mean, I think probably that one group of Libyans won a war against the other group of Libyans, but we happened to buy back the right group. Um, and we didn't actually land ourselves in too many disasters. I think that we were probably quite lucky. Um, and he can certainly take some credit for that. Uh, on Europe, I think he's run into a lot of trouble. Uh, I don't think that he and George Osborne and others are capable of working out how to deal with what is happening in Europe. What is happening in Europe is the implosion of a, a utopian artificially created system whose main public aspect is the euro, but which is built on fundamentally unsound principles and unconservative principles, um, treating unlike as being like, if you like. So I don't think that he and George Osborne and others have at all worked out uh, how we should play it either as regards getting our own powers back, or as how we should play it if and when, and I think it is only a matter of when, the Eurozone implodes. So I think that he has trouble over this, and I think that the Conservative Party will have trouble over this, yes. Other questions? On the corner here, Stuart Wheeler. Uh, since it looks likely that the Liberal Democrats would be destroyed if there were an election now, it must also follow that the Conservatives have nothing whatever to fear from them, and yet they appear to be paying a great deal of attention to them in what they do and don't do. Is this really because they're doing what they want and are just using the Liberal Democrats as an excuse, or are they really frightened by them? Thank you. Gentleman in the yellow tie, and then I'll go to the back. 
Oh, you spoke about ideology quite a lot in terms of Disraeli and one nationism. Um, do you think that ideology has anything to play in the modern Conservative Party? Thank you. And then the, the woman just two rows from the back there. Um, Caroline Strafford, do you think there is a disconnect with politicians nowadays and the people? Um, because you might say that people felt they knew what Mrs Thatcher felt on most issues, but people haven't a clue now what Cameron really believes in. And particularly when you go back to the speech at the party conference when most people were uh, swayed over by his fantastic speech and he had no notes, but he seemed then Eurosceptic, and people find now he seems to be quite pro-Europe. People just don't know what he believes in. Do you agree? Okay, I'll take, I'll take one further question. There's one gentleman in the bit further back to the middle there. And I'll come back to s some more questions in a moment. The Conservative Party seems a pretty depressing place for those of us with classical rather than Cameron liberal sympathies. Um, do you see any grounds for optimism in leadership coming through within the Conservative Party post-Cameron? And could you ever envisage UKIP as being a credible home for people with such sympathies? Thank you. Okay. Mm. Oh, you should be speaking about UKIP, I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, Stuart Wheeler. Um, well, I agree with the thrust of your question. I think that um, for the Tory modernisers, it is extremely convenient to be in coalition with the Liberals because it allows them to tell their own supporters, well, we can't do this that you want because Mr Clegg and his friends wouldn't allow us to. I think that that is definitely a tactic. I don't think it's a terribly wise tactic because in the end they'll have to rely on their own supporters, not on Nick Clegg, who is a completely busted flush. I mean, how long he will even stay leader of the Liberal Party? I don't know. Will he even hold his seat at the next election? Unlikely, I would have thought. Um, ideology. Well, that's an interesting. The question is, of course, what one means by ideology. I know that's a extremely boring point. You know, what do you mean by so and so? But it is an. Ideas are very important in politics. But ideas, I've always believed, um, appear. They're not created. Um, there are particular ideas about human beings, how they function, the best circumstances under which they cooperate, uh, which I think is actually under the circumstances of freedom, in a word, these ideas are very important in politics and you have to grasp them because they are true um, on the other hand of course ideas are also part of propaganda and why shouldn't they be a party has to convey an image of itself and Disraeli as you suggest was absolutely brilliant at doing this and Cameron is quite adept at doing it um, but Ideology I am distrustful of in this, perhaps it's because of my age and having imbibed too much of Cold War politics, but I do think of ideology as something which is too close to socialism as Marxism for my um, taste. Uh, I don't like uh, programs of um, principles which people think they have, can never ever deviate from. Uh, as a conservative, I think we have to adapt 
our instincts and feelings um, and priorities to circumstances. Um, I think that we should get back to taking ideas seriously. That's how I would answer your question. The third point was the, <clears throat> the cocooning, that's my word rather than yours, of uh, politics from the people. This does happen. It doesn't just happen in this country. It's something that happens very easily. And it isn't a cocooning either of politicians who become isolated from their constituents and supporters in this country. They, they have much more in common with each other because they mix with each other more than they do with their constituents. But also, of course, at an international level, the leaders of governments have far more in common than they do with those who are sending them to these conferences, allegedly. And, of course, we're seeing through your Europe, I mean, the Germans and the French and the European Union are actually deciding who is going to be Prime Minister of Greece, who's going to decide, deciding who's going to be Prime Minister of Italy. Uh, perhaps they, at some point soon, will be deciding who's going to be Prime Minister of France. All sorts of countries. Now, that isn't really how we like to play things in Britain. It isn't how I like to play things. But I think there's a real danger that, yes, uh, the political class, and particularly the international political class, has far more in common with each other than it does with those who are sending them to these positions of representation and to whom they are meant to be responsible. Um, optimism about the leadership of the Conservative Party. I don't really know enough of the individuals concerned. I mean, I know David Cameron, I give him a job. Um, and I know some of the others. Um, but who would be likely to succeed him or under what circumstances, I don't know. Personally, I am pleased about what I know of the opinions of the new intake of Conservative backbenchers. Um, I don't think they and I would agree about everything. Well, what does that matter? But they are basically libertarians. And if we can have politicians who really do understand that overweening and abused state power is a thing which has to be resisted if we're going to maintain a proper functioning democracy in this country, then that's a pretty important start. Thank you. Some more questions? Young woman down here. Um, Hilary Wheel, um, you've touched briefly on the question of leadership, but given the qualities that you've described um, uh, prior to this, uh, do you think that Boris Johnson would make a good leader of the party, <laughs> and will he seek to become it? And what? Will he seek to become the leader of the party? And then there's a question at the very back there. Um, I was wondering what lessons you thought Tony Blair might offer a historian of political leadership. No. <laughs> and then, gentleman in the blue shirt. Hi. Um, I'd like to know um, to what extent you think David Cameron's modernisation of the Conservative Party, after he became leader in 2005, was necessary in order to win the support of the electorate. Thank you. Well, let's take those three. Boris first. Okay. Boris. <clears throat> well, I do know Boris, actually. I'm not terribly well. Um, I offered him a job, but he found a better one at the Telegraph. Um, I like Boris Johnson. I um, think he's extremely talented. 
Whether he's the right man to be leader of the Conservative Party, I don't know. Um, whether he wants to be leader of the Conservative Party, I suspect he does. Tony Blair. Well, <clears throat> that's a very interesting question. Um, the problem with the Labour Party was, in the 1980s, that it was wrong. It was wrong about everything. It was wrong about the economy. It was wrong about the relationship between individuals and the state. It was wrong about the Cold War. Now, because the Labour Party was so comprehensively, fundamentally wrong, it was necessary for somebody to come along, first of all, prove that it was wrong. That person was Mrs. Thatcher. And then somebody had to take hold of the Labour Party and convince even the hardline Labour people that it was wrong. And that person was Tony Blair. And Tony Blair, I think, has an important transitional role in British politics. Now, the question, I suppose, is whether... I think this actually brings me on to the other question about modernisation, which gentleman was it? It was... Yes, yeah. I think these two things sort of fit together. <clears throat> now, was the Conservative Party fundamentally wrong in the 80s and 90s? Well, I would say it wasn't. In fact, I would say that it had become quite clear that the Conservative priorities and model of how the state should function, how the economy should work, international relations should go, looking, for example, to American leadership and so on, I would have said that that model was working pretty well. Uh, I don't think people thought that you could turn back from free enterprise capitalism. I don't think people thought that you really should have more and more immigration. I don't think people thought that you should go much further into economic integration in Europe, for example, except, accepting the euro and so on. So, in other words, I don't think there was something which was fundamentally wrong which had to be changed. And that, I think, is my central dispute with David Cameron and modernizers. Because I believe, I don't want to put words into their mouths, but I think this is so. I think they really felt that the problem was the Conservative Party itself, and that this problem went beyond presentation. Now, of course, it was a presentational problem. If there hadn't been a presentational problem, I mean, perhaps one would have won an election. Though I do think, actually, that it was policy errors which largely lost it, but not completely. A party does need to be attractive, needs to have people of the right social mix. It needs to look good. It needs to sound good and look good in contemporary circumstances. Now, if that's modernisation, I'm all for it. Put Harris and co. back into their distant wigwams and teepees. Fine. Absolutely fine. But don't try and set the project out on a completely new course, which um, means throwing over the true things, the, the, the important policy truths that have actually changed the country for the better. And that's my worry about David Cameron. You see, I think that David Cameron's strategy also made some sense in opposition, but it's left him very confused in government. Because if you really think that the most important, his most important 
things that he wants to do, let's say, very large increase in overseas aid. You really think that that is the priority now when we have no growth, enormous unemployment, uh, imploding Eurozone. Uh, you actually think that an enormous increase in overseas aid or when our industry is struggling to create jobs and win markets, you actually think that you want to pile on costs in order to combat climate change. If you really think that that is the priority, I say that you've got your priorities really quite wrong. And you should, you should think more clearly, and you should think more clearly in conservative principle, along conservative principled lines, and you're more likely to be a successful government than you would otherwise be. That's all I'd say. Any more questions? On, on the edge there. On my extreme left, as they say. I wondered what um, you thought of what the Conservative-led government is doing on welfare and schools, um, and on the basis of that, whether you thought it was possible to show great Conservative leadership as a Cabinet Minister. Anything else? One further question from the gentleman at the back. Sorry to ask another question. Uh, I wondered if there was something of a tension in your description of your kind of feeling Oakeshottian conservatism, and then your kind of Hayekian, and you don't like the word ideological, but I think it sounds relatively ideological. And when you say people were right or wrong in the 80s, and when you kind of affirm a commitment to libertarian principles, to me that's quite... I wonder if you sort of become what you, what you said you opposed, right. in terms of the way you think. <laughs> Any last question to add to that? Well, I just want to add one, one, one question. I mean, I've got many questions, but I just want to probe on how far luck plays a role in your story about leadership. I mean, you've given an account of what successful, what the, what the virtues of the successful leader are, but how far are they simply skills that are thrown up by people in fortunate circumstances. What marks out the poor leader, think of poor old Neville Chamberlain and John Major, they were just desperately unlucky, weren't they? Question. Should we deal with those? <coughs> well, they're three very separate questions, and if it doesn't sound patronizing, three very good ones. Um, well, the first thing, welfare and schools. Um, it's certainly possible to be a successful cabinet minister, yes. Uh, and um, uh, Gove seems to me to be doing very good things as far as schools are concerned. And he may well emerge from this government as one of the few cabinet ministers who is deemed to have been a success, which may be of some future importance. I think that Ian Duncan Smith's welfare policies are dead right. Um, they are enormously ambitious. Um, I do think that in the 1980s, the Thatcher government got schools about 50% right and 50% wrong. The national curriculum was a disaster. Um, Grant maintained schools were a good thing. And Gove is going down what I would call more, well, 
under another name, more or less, the grant maintained schools, academies, and so on. The other failure uh, of the 80s was that we didn't do enough um, as regards welfare reform. And incidentally, this wasn't just in this country, Reagan didn't either. It was one of those things that I've seen some speculation as to why we didn't. And I think there's some truth in this. I think that there was a feeling um, by both Ronald Reagan and Mrs. Thatcher, being of that generation, obviously he's older than her, but still of the similar political generation, there was a feeling that um, perverse incentives were not such a big problem as we have now realized that they are. In other words, the idea that the payment of welfare under certain conditions is going radically to change the behavior of those who are in receipt of it. I think we, were, we didn't think about that enough. And in fact, the big welfare change under, in America was under Clinton. Uh, and, and I think that Duncan Smith is on the right lines. I'm not at all optimistic that it's going to work with Duncan Smith for this reason, because it seems to me to be highly complicated and to depend too much on the new computer system, which I distrust. Um, what was the second? Wait a minute. I've got it down here. Hayek and Oakeshott. Ah. Yes. Well, both Hayek and Oakeshott, of course, were... Um, came from this particular stable. And a fine stable it is. Uh, I don't think that there's much conflict between either between Hayek and Oakeshott. Um, not really. I mean, I don't know what they thought of each other. Uh, obviously, they were. I, I, I've heard Hayek. Uh, I heard him speak in the uh, in central office in 1980, uh, and I did actually have dinner once with Oakeshott. So, but. They're both very conservative people. Um, I think there was a lot in common, and Hayek was not an ideologue. Uh, he would have had this distrust that I, I do for ideology, particularly the word. You would never find the word ideology uh, praised in any of Hayek's writing, as far as I know. The great similarity between a Hayekian view and an Oakeshottian view is epistemological. If you are a Hayekian, and if you are an Oakeshottian, you are very conscious that there is a lot that you do not know. Now, the Oakeshottian is conscious that therefore, rather than Burke's tradition, that therefore we have to leave a lot to tradition, to try to act and react to things in a traditional manner, as one of his uh, phrases, as you know. Because actually, we can't think out things in a rationalistic way and think of the answers to all the problems of the world just one by one as I come across. Similarly, Hayek's, Hayek's real um, criticism of socialism is above all that the planners do not have sufficient information to do the things that they want to do. And this, I think, is where there is absolutely, they're just like that, both Hayek and Oakeshott. Oakeshott wasn't particularly interested in economics. But I think that they are very similar, and I think that it is quite possible to be as it sounds pompous, but as I would say I am, uh, whether it's Hayekian Oakeshottian or an Oakeshottian Hayekian, um, but I think I am, and I think it's quite possible to be so. Now, luck. Mm -hmm. Fortune favours the brave. 
but only sometimes, I think one could probably say. Um, well, you're completely right, obviously. Um, luck is very important. Mrs. Thatcher always considered herself a lucky politician. Strange that I'm not completely convinced that that's so. I've actually argued with her about it. But she was absolutely convinced that she was a lucky politician. Um, that is a sign of humility, of course, because if you think that luck has nothing to do with it, you think that only your own efforts have, or even more dangerously, think you think that you're an instrument of the Almighty. And as soon as you think that, well, send for the men in white coats. But uh, luck, well, you know, to take, I would say that Salisbury was very lucky that Gladstone so mishandled um, Irish home rule as to split his own party, and he did. I think that was luck. I think Salisbury used it well, but it, that was very lucky. Um, I don't think, on the other hand, Disraeli was particularly lucky. I think he was probably quite unlucky, because the real problem that Derby and Disraeli had for so many decades was that Palmerston kept on and on and on. He wouldn't die. <laughs> if Palmerston, they'd been lucky enough that Palmerston, in one of his um, orgiastic uh, exhibitions, had actually died, had a heart attack before he did, uh, the Conservatives would have been back to power because Palmerston represented the moderate face of liberalism. And once that had gone, the Conservatives could come back. Now, Neville Chamberlain and John Major, I can't believe that either of them was particularly unlucky. I mean, I think that Neville Chamberlain was not unlucky. He was wrong. I mean, he was wrong about appeasement. Terribly, terribly wrong. Um, it was, my own views about appeasement are that appeasement on the early stage made some sense. In other words, appeasement trying to ensure that the Versailles settlement, mm. in one form or another, didn't break down to have new war in Europe. And trying to ensure that France felt secure, that Italy didn't feel hard done by, and that the Germans uh, weren't going to become uh, aggressive again. This made sense. After 1933, appeasement did not make sense because Hitler had come to power. There was absolutely no way that once Hitler had come to power, you were going to avoid a European war. And if you knew that you were going to have a European war, in one way or the other, it was better to defeat Hitler when you could. And I think that uh, Chamberlain was um, uh, a vain, um, short-sighted um, little man, and I think I have no sympathy for him. Um, which brings me to John Major. <laughs> um, actually, I don't think that of John Major. I, I, but I don't think either that he was particularly unlucky. You see, you could say that he actually really had pretty good luck. I mean, he came in the last year of the Thatcher government, as I well remember, I was in Downing Street, was a pretty horrendous year. And we'd made mistakes, a big mistake. We made two big mistakes. We made the mistake about the poll tax, and we made the mistake about the economy, allowing inflation to rise. Nigel Lawson made it, but anyway, we allowed it. And, um, but in fact, the, although Mrs. Thatcher wouldn't have, I suppose, scrapped the poll tax, we were moving pretty fast towards a fundamental reform of it. And on the economy, interest rates had gone up high enough to bring down inflation. And Major had a pretty good inheritance. 
He had a pretty good inheritance, and he had a fundamentally united party. And he was a good party manager, extremely good party manager. I mean, he, he deserved his good luck in that way. But he did really get it wrong over the exchange rate mechanism. He really did. He did get it wrong over Europe, and it wasn't necessary to play it like that. So I don't think that that was just bad luck. Well, on that, I think we have to bring things to a close. So can I ask you to join with me in thanking Robin for a very interesting Thank talk? Thank you very much. <clears throat> There's, there's much more we could have continued um, talking about in this conversation, but some of the things that, that we've been talking about, I'm sure, will continue to reappear in the agenda and program for British government at LSE, so I'd encourage you to keep um, an eye on what we're, what we're planning for the future. Um, after this, Robin is available to, uh, to, to sign books at the um, front of the lecture hall, so I would be grateful if you could allow us to, to leave first, and then um, if you wish to come and purchase a book and speak to Robin outside, that will be fine. So thank you all once again for coming, and we look forward to seeing you at uh, further uh, events at the LSE. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. Thank you.